Well, the rules for the game of telephone are very simple. If you've played the game before, you line up everyone who's participating. You line up them in a straight row, and the person at the front of the line is given a phrase to say. And the goal of the game is to pass that phrase from one person to the next and to keep that phrase as solid and as intact and as faithful as it was at the beginning as it was at the end. But if you've ever played the game or witnessed it played by others, you know that it rarely ever ends as it began. What starts out as, you know, it was Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with a candlestick, ends up as the Colonel eats mustard in the kitchen by candlestick or something like that. There are similarities between the original and the final, but their similarities are eclipsed by the fact that they mean completely different things. As you probably know, the game of telephone is not so much a game as much as it is a social experiment. And the experiment is to show how a phrase becomes altered, even distorted, as it's passed from one person to the next. The further down the line the phrase goes, the greater the alteration, the greater the distortion it becomes. And one could argue, culturally speaking, in America, we are witnessing a generational game of telephone taking place. What arguably started as infused or founded or informed by Judeo-Christian values has, over generation, over time, become something that is really altering and distorting and just denying and discarding those values altogether. And one area of society where this is, I think, most plain and evident is regarding marriage and family life. What was once considered the glue, the, the fabric, the stitching that holds society together is now viewed by many as an oppressive traditional value that's really an obstacle to a progressive agenda that's aimed at revolutionizing revolutionizing society. And so in the cultural game of telephone, where do we stand in the line of the original and the distorted alteration uh, of marriage? Well, I think we stand in one where the, the definition, the idea, the view of marriage is significantly altered and highly distorted. It is one that is far removed from God's original design. And what we need to do, although if you play the game of telephone, this is technically breaking the rules of the game. We need to step out of our place in line and where we are in the culture, and we need to go back to the sources, back to the fountain, the word of God, and understand what he says and how he informs us of his original design and his biblical ideal for what marriage ought to be. And that's what Jesus does for us in this passage. You see, we're, we're not unique in the history of the world. It's not like we're the only ones who have ever distorted and altered God's view of marriage or, or any of his gifts. It's been going on since Genesis 3. And what Jesus is doing is he's going to people who are coming to him who have a distorted and altered view of marriage, and they're, they're consulting him, and he is taking them back to the original, back to the ideal, so they might be renewed according to the scriptures. So what Jesus does for us in this passage is he seeks to replace our altered and distorted views of marriage with his original design and perspective so that we, as his disciples, would be those who accurately reflect his ideals into a world that is twisted and fallen and distorted when it comes to understanding the ways of God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through two aspects of marriage. Marriage as it was designed by God, and then what the Bible says about divorce. And we're going to see, what does our culture say about those things? What's, what is the culture whispering in our ears in this game of telephone? But then contrast that with, what does Jesus say to us? What do the scriptures say to us about 
those things. And I, and I know that this is a sensitive topic, and this is one that affects so many people. And so I would just ask for your, your careful, attentive listening to the word. Take what I say from the word. If I don't say it from the word, then discard it. But give ear to us because this is something we, we desperately need to hear. We need to be renewed in our minds according to God's definitions, not our culture's whisperings in our ears. And there's much that could be said. I'm not going to say everything here. I might not nuance it the way you'd want to, but if you have more questions as it comes up in this, because I know there's, there's generals and there's specifics in your own situations, you know, if you want to talk about those, I'd be more than happy to. But I'm going to try to address this more generally. What does the Bible say about these two topics? But before we do that, let's set the scene of our passage. Look with me at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 19. And you'll notice in verse 1 of Matthew 19, he signals that a geographical change has taken place in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has been in the north in Galilee, in Capernaum. He's been ministering up there. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew, he's been there really ever since the end of chapter 4 and the Sermon on the Mount. But now he comes back to the area of Judea beyond the river Jordan. And that's significant for, for two reasons, really. One is that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is coming closer to Jerusalem. He's been away in the north, far away in the north. Now he's coming just to the west of Jerusalem, probably about 10 miles or so. And that's significant because of what he's been telling his disciples recently. I am going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. And so much to their chagrin and dismay, he's telling them that when we go back there, which we do, they have to come for the feasts and festivals. And he's saying, when I go there, it's, it's not going to be for blessing, but for curse. I am going to suffer and die. And so they're holding their breath as they get closer geographically to Jerusalem. The second reason this location is significant is because what happened the last time he was in this region in the Gospel of Matthew? The last time he was there, he was baptized by John in the Jordan and then immediately goes into the wilderness of the Judean region beyond the river of Jordan and he's tested by the devil in the wilderness. And that testing signaled the beginning of his public ministry. Well, guess what? He comes back, chapter 19, verse 3, and lo and behold, who is there to greet him? The Pharisees, who John called a brood of vipers, the offspring of Satan. And they're there to do what? To test him. And what Matthew's doing is he's got these little bookends here, and he's signaling that just as Jesus' ministry began by attesting in the wilderness, so the beginning of the end of his ministry begins by a testing in the wilderness. And it's going to now reach kind of a crescendo at the cross in Matthew 27. So what is the test? Look at verse three. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him. Same word used in Matthew 4, 1. And they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Well, Mark read from the NIV, for any and every reason. So the Pharisees are trying to lay a trap for Jesus. You should know this by now if you know the Pharisees. Are they genuinely asking this question because they don't know the answer? Absolutely not. This is a trap that they're trying to set for Jesus. And the question is the cheese that they want the mouse to grab so the trap gets sprung. And what they're trying to do is give him a question that no matter how he answers it, it's a lose-lose situation, at least as they see it. Because verse two mentions there's large crowds. So there's popularity of Jesus. They're flocking to him. There's still large crowds around Jesus. That will change later, but for now it's large crowds. 
And that only gives rise to the envy and jealousy within the Pharisees. They're the party of popularity. They want to be in with the people. And yet the people are with Jesus. And so what they want to do is they want to turn the crowds against him or at least draw them out of favor with Jesus. So how do you go about doing that? Well, you find a view that Jesus has on a controversial subject that a majority of the crowds will not agree with. And you get him to admit that in front of that crowd. That happens in politics, it happens in you know, life all the time. So reporters, are, I think that's their job nowadays, just get people to do that. So enter in the highly sensitive, hotly debated subject of divorce. So they're putting basically the microphone in front of him, asking him the most controversial question they can think of before a crowd so that he can, either the crowds will turn against him or draw out of favor with him. And a good majority of people in Judaism at that time, believe it or not, had a very loose and very liberal view of divorce based on Deuteronomy 24.1. I'm not going to go there. You can, you can write it down. That's kind of the text that's kind of in the background of Matthew 19. In Deuteronomy 24.1, Moses speaks about if a man finds fault with his wife and he gives her a certificate of divorce because he finds some indecency in her. So Moses is setting up the situation where divorce is going to happen. And it's based off this phrase, some indecency. Now, that was a hotly debated phrase. How do we interpret this? Well, a good number of people took a very expansive view of what could be included in that phrase, some indecency. And when I mean expansive, I mean expansive, very creative. It, for some, could include if a wife burned the husband's supper. That was some indecency. It could include some physical defect like bushy eyebrows or other serious marital issues along those lines. And these are things that were really written down in the, in the Jewish writings of the rabbis at the time. They, they loved the liberality at which they could fill that phrase with, with different opportunities. Well, the Pharisees knew that many people in the crowd held this, this expansive view, and they knew, based off what Jesus had already said in the Sermon on the Mount, that he does not hold that view. His view is much more constricted. It strikes at the liberty that they want to use to define uh, what some indecency is. And so they asked this question. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. In fact, he doesn't first and foremost answer their question. In fact, he says, you're coming to me with Deuteronomy 24.1. Let me take you back to the beginning. Let me take you back to Genesis 1 and 2 and show you that you're using the exception and missing the rule. Let's start with the rule and then we can look at the exception. And essentially what Jesus is saying here is to know the answer to the question, you have to start with God's original design for marriage. To think rightly about divorce, you have to start by thinking rightly about marriage. So how do we think rightly about marriage? Well, we first have to do some excavation. What does our culture communicate to us about marriage? And maybe what are some ways we've absorbed that into our own thinking? Well, in our line, our place in line in the game of telephone, our culture whispers in our ear that marriage is a temporary cultural vehicle for pursuing your personal happiness. Marriage is a temporary cultural vehicle for pursuing your personal happiness. In other words, the culture says that marriage is one of the cars that you can lease on the car leasing lot. You can drive it around. You can see if it brings you personal happiness. If it does, you can consider leasing to own. If it doesn't, why don't you trade it in for one of the other cars that has been manufactured by other car companies that are out there. There's nothing sacred about marriage. There's nothing transcendent about it. 
It's just one thing that man has come up with for how you could possibly enjoy life in the here and now. We'll contrast that with what Jesus says. Jesus takes us in verses four through six back to the origin of marriage. He takes us up to the author of marriage and introduces us to him and then gives us his definition of marriage. Jesus wants us to see the prototype of marriage in the paradise of Eden before sin had stained it or spoiled it at all. So verse four, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus tells us, that marriage is no man-made cultural construct. Far from it. It is a divinely designed, significant gift that God has given us, that he designed himself. Marriage is not Plato that can be molded and shaped and set aside at will. Marriage is a beautifully cut diamond as old as the Garden of Eden that God has given us as one of his most precious gifts. And since God is the designer of marriage, that implies that he is the definer of marriage. If God designs it, he gets to define it. So how does he define it here? I'm just gonna kind of break down the things that Jesus says in there and how they relate to aspects of marriage as God defines it. God defines the parties of marriage. Jesus says, do you not know that he in the beginning made them male and female? A marriage is only a marriage when it takes place between one man and one woman. Polygamous marriage, polyamorous marriage, same-sex marriage, those are oxymorons that do not exist in the Lord's authoritative dictionary. It is only the parties he defines, one man and one woman. Abraham Lincoln was fond of asking his audiences, if you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? His audience would respond, five. And he would say, no. The correct answer is four. Calling a tail a leg does not make it a leg. (laughs) God defines marriage and the parties in it. One man, one woman. You can change the definition if you want, but it doesn't change the essence of it. You can try and alter it, but it never changes the reality of it. And in these two parties of one man and one woman, we see in their diversity... And in their unity, the union that they come together to make one flesh, we see a picture of the beauty and wisdom of God who is creating this institution to reflect what he is like in himself. That God is diversity and he is unity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, harmonious fellowship. And that is displayed through the coming together of two that are not the same, but complement each other in marriage. God defines the parties of marriage. God also defines the exclusivity of marriage or the parameters of marriage. This one man and this one woman rightly take vows that include the phrase forsaking all others and being faithful only to you. Marriage is not a contract to lease a spouse for as long as you please. It is a covenant promise, a binding vow that you will be faithful only to your spouse and you will forsake all others. So God defines the exclusivity of marriage. He also then defines the priority of marriage. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. 
Leave and cleave, as the King James Version would put it. And the idea here is take the most significant relationship that one person knows their whole life, which is their family, the relationship of their father and mother. When someone gets married, that new relationship of marriage trumps all other human, earthly relationships. Under your relationship with God, there is no more important relationship than your marriage. It takes priority over parents, over kids, over employer, over hobbies, over church membership, over friends, over finances, and most importantly, we need to hear in our day, your marriage takes precedence and priority over your personal self-interest and happiness. Marriage is the primary arena where we have to live out and learn the command of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let each of us do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count someone else more significant than yourself. Let's look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. The race to all of life and marriage especially. Marriage is where you learn to love God by loving your neighbor, and in marriage, your closest neighbor is your spouse. So God defines the priority of marriage. And also God defines the purpose of marriage. Jesus says this leaving and cleaving happens so that the two should become one flesh. God's purpose in bringing a man and a woman together in marriage is that they might think as one, they might act as one, they might feel as one, and most importantly, they might glorify God as one. Me-centeredness, using marriage to build up your tiny little kingdom of self, is a poisonous toxin in marriage. But a God-centered, other-oriented approach to marriage, the kind that says marriage is not about the kingdom of self, but about the kingdom of God, is the miracle grow that causes a marriage to flourish. There is no me-ism in marriage. It becomes we-ism. So God defines the purpose of marriage. And then finally, God defines the permanence of marriage. Jesus ends, and he ends very intentionally, by answering and kind of not answering their question by saying, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God's original design, his ideal for marriage from the beginning was that we would say and mean and keep the vow until death do us part. Now the culture we live in, it loves to define love as a feeling that you follow wherever it may lead. Love is that, that feeling that just, you know, just kind of moves you around. You follow it wherever it may lead. If it leads you into marriage, well, then get married. But if it leads you out of marriage, then get out of marriage. In stark contrast to that, the Bible defines love at its essence, at its core, as a commitment, as a vow of permanence that we keep despite how we may feel one day to the next. You could wake up one day and you don't feel like that. It could be the pizza you ate last night. You don't follow that feeling. You hold to the vow. Remember, one of my, my pastors would say, you know, we have this idea that, is it, were they the one? Is this the one? He said, you know how I know it's the one? Because it's on your marriage certificate. That's how you know it's the one. <laughs> Not the most romantic thing when I said that with my wife, but um, <laughs> helpful at times. Prefer. Yes, yes. <laughs> Love is not devoid of feelings, okay? But it is not driven by feelings, okay? They are the fruit, not the root of love. As one author said, feelings make great servants, but terrible masters. Great servants, but terrible masters. So God defines marriage 
because God designed marriage. To sum it up, as one author said, marriage is not a human invention. It is a divine revelation. Its design never was our own made-up arrangement of infinite moldability. It was given to us at the beginning of all things as a brightly shining diamond of eternal significance. We might not always live up to its true grandeur. None of us will ever do so perfectly, but we have no right to redefine it and we have every reason to revere it. But not only do we want to revere it, we want to reflect it. And in order to reflect it, we must diligently study and apply God's design for marriage. They came to him with the exception. Jesus took them to the rule. You need to know the rule and you need to know it well before we can ever deal with any exceptions. Think about how we see this in life. As a musician diligently studies the the original symphony so that when they play it, they can play it accurately and beautifully. Or as an artist studies the, the landscape, the original landscape that they want to draw, So we as Christians should study the original design that God has for marriage so that we can reflect it in our own. So look to the composer of the original symphony of the sweet music of marriage. Study his sheet music and then seek to play that in your marriage. Look to the one who has originally crafted this beautiful diamond of marriage and trace the lines that he has laid down for us in your own marriage. You know, one of the myths of marriage is that marriage is always gonna be like enjoying a a fire on a 60-degree night with no breeze that you started with a self-lighting log and kept going every 45 minutes by putting some slow-burning dry wood on it. You know, it's the idea that it should be nearly effortless and always blissfully enjoyable. Reality, though, is that marriage, especially in a sinful fallen world, at times, not always, at times, feels more like trying to start a fire in a hurricane with wet wood and no matches while your spouse is standing there next to you telling you that you should hurry up because they're cold. Preach it. Yes. Not always like that. But we live live east of Eden. Okay, so what Jesus is telling us, that's the ideal, that's the original, that's what we want to pursue. But we don't live in Genesis 1 and 2. We live in Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. And so, I want to steal a line from, from Mike Bruce here. Marriage isn't just hard work. It's brutally hard work. And I would just add to that, it is worthwhile and rewarding work. Don't ever let anyone tell you marriage is easy, but don't let anyone tell you it's not enjoyable. Right? If we want to enjoy the harvest of a sweet marriage, we have to labor diligently and dependently in the fields of marriage. And it is, the fruit of marriage is some of the sweetest fruit that God gives us to enjoy on this earth. Sometimes it tastes bitter and it is hard, but it can be sweet. And so let me just try and encourage you and inspire you in your own labors for a godly marriage. These are questions I just, as I was writing this, just thought to myself of how can we intentionally pursue investment in marriage? Because so many times it's easy to shift into autopilot. Like like marriage is a self-driving car that will automatically get you to the destination you want. That's not how it works. In autopilot, marriage doesn't go well. You need to take over. And so these are some questions to help you shift out of autopilot into manual so that you you start driving well. Ask yourself, how can I study marriage this year? Pick a passage from scripture or a solid Christian book on marriage and seek to meditate on that, think about it, reflect it so that you can apply the wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of the scriptures to your own marriage. Study the original so you trace its lines. 
How can I serve my spouse this year? Consider some tangible way that you can demonstrate love to your spouse by helping her with one of her responsibilities, one of her burdens, and be a blessing to her. How can I serve my spouse? Another question, how can I surprise my spouse? We should seek to grow in a knowledge, an intelligent knowledge of our spouse such that we know what they like, what they delight in, what brings them enjoyment, and we should seek to surprise them with those things at times. Get creative to see how you might just demonstrate in a tangible, gift-oriented way that I love my spouse. And this is one where you really you have to learn to know them. You have to grow in knowledge of them. You know, because we can often give gifts that we would like to receive, but maybe they wouldn't. So, for example, if Ashley gave me a pet, she said, I surprised you. I would be surprised. It wouldn't be a blessing to me, okay? If I got her a thousand-page theology book, she would be surprised, but it wouldn't be a blessing to her. And then this is the most important one. How can I sanctify my spouse? The most important question that you can ask in your marriage is how can you do spiritual good to them? Because marriage is not about your happiness. It is ultimately about your holiness. Yes, you, happiness is, is part of it, but that's not the goal. That's not the aim. The aim is sanctification, growing in holiness. So what are ways you can encourage them in their walk? What are ways you can come alongside them and encourage them in that? So we want to think rightly about marriage by looking at the one who's designed it and looking at the one who's defined it. Well, let's, let's move on in our text. And look with me at verse seven. And notice that the Pharisees have a follow-up question for Jesus. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So Jesus first answered their original question by kind of leapfrogging it and going back to the beginning. And he ended his original answer by saying that God designed marriage in such a way that what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, they're they're really stumbling over that let not man separate part, that, that permanency part. And so they're thinking, it sounds like Jesus is saying there's never a cause or reason for divorce. And so how does what he just said reconcile with what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24.1? Well, before we get to Jesus' answer to their question, and he's going to answer it, what message does our culture communicate to us about divorce? So marriage is you know, this temporary cultural vehicle for your personal happiness. Well, what about divorce? And I think in our line that we stand, not spot in line we stand in the game of telephone, the culture whispers into our ear that divorce is an easy and desirable solution to an undesirable marriage. It's an easy and desirable solution to an undesirable marriage. One thing our culture says is that one of the greatest sins you can commit against yourself is remaining in a situation in which you're unhappy, especially marriage. That's kind of the great sin, doing something that makes you unhappy. And we live in a time in history where it has never been easier to annul a marriage. And think about the time of the Reformation. King Henry VIII, to divorce from Catherine of Aragon, he had to start a whole denomination and claim himself as the supreme head of that denomination just to get a divorce. Now, all you have to do is sit on the internet in the privacy of your own home and fill out some forms, and it's done. And so there's, there's an ease to it because our culture has said, not just said, but made it easy and desirable to get out of an undesirable, unhappy situation. Well, contrast that with what Jesus says to the Pharisees in verses eight and nine. He said to them, 
Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, it's gonna be a key word, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. Now this is a part where we're wading in incredibly treacherous, sensitive waters. So I wanna be very careful and very, very clear with my words. So I, I usually try not to do this, I'm going to try and read word for word from what I said because I want to be so clear, so careful with what I say about this because I know this has affected one, every one of us to one degree or another. The essence of what Jesus says and the scriptures say to us about divorce in contrast to the world around us is this. Divorce is an undesirable, limited last resort due to the fact that we are sinful people living in a sinful world. Contrast that with the culture. It's easy, it's desirable. Jesus is saying, divorce is an undesirable, limited last resort due to the fact that we, we are sinful people that live in a fallen world. And I get this in part from the switch that Jesus does. The Pharisees said, why did Moses command a man to give a certificate of divorce? Notice the word that Jesus used in verse eight. He very intentionally substitutes the word allowed. They think command, Jesus says, no, allowed. There is no command in Deuteronomy 24. It's, it's taking an exception in a unique circumstance and saying, here's how you should handle it. It's like saying, you know, if you're, if you're going to teach driver's ed to someone, getting in car accidents should be the exception to driving. So you should spend time on how to actually drive on the roads. If you spent the whole time in driver's ed learning how to get out of an accident, you'd be spending your whole time on the exception. No, you need to start with the rule, not the exception. The hope is that if you get into an accident, here's how you drive. So Jesus is saying that the Bible never commands divorce. It permits it on certain limited grounds. Said another way, the Bible never says you ought to divorce. It only says you can divorce in certain situations. God prefers reconciliation. He permits divorce. So when Jesus says, from the beginning, it was not so, he's saying that divorce was never God's original intention for marriage. It was only a later concession, as it were, by God due to the sinfulness of mankind. It is the exception, not the rule. And so let me give some brief bullet points about kind of scripture's broader statements that it makes regarding this, this subject. So one, so just kind of stated in propositions. The Bible says that before we pursue the undesirable possibility of divorce, we should exhaust the desirable possibility of reconciliation and restoration. That's a priority the scripture puts it in. As much as it depends on you, and there are situations where it just is not gonna happen. You should pursue peace though. You should pursue reconciliation. That should be the first avenue we go down. Second proposition. The Bible only gives two cases, two situations, in which divorce is allowed, although not required. One, Jesus mentions in this text when he says, except for sexual morality, which I take to mean, in general, it's a situation in which one spouse has clearly, undeniably, and unrepentantly been sexually unfaithful to their spouse. That this is a case in which divorce is permitted but not required. The second, Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 7.15. You have to turn there, just write it down. And he describes a situation in which one spouse willfully, 
deserts and abandons another spouse, and there's no reasonable hope of reconciliation. Those are the two cases in which the Bible says divorce is permitted, although not required. Third proposition. The Bible says that when the offended party divorces for one of those two reasons, they are not in sin and are free to remarry, but should only remarry another believer in the Lord. So many times we can note these exceptions, but when someone actually does go through them, we can treat them as if they have a scarlet letter on them for the rest of their life. And the reality is the, the Bible says, no, these are real legitimate reasons where divorce is permitted, and therefore, if that's what happens in your marriage, you are not in sin and you are free to remarry, and you should remarry in the Lord. In other words, the permissible grounds for divorce are also permissible grounds for remarriage, and you should not live in guilt and shame because they're permitted. Fourth proposition. The Bible also teaches that when a person gets divorced for unbiblical reasons, they are not permitted to get remarried, and to do so would be a sin. And and the reasoning behind this is Jesus' logic in Matthew 19. He says, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, so if they don't have legitimate reasons to do it, and he marries another, they commit adultery. What he's saying here is, when you do not have legitimate reasons in the eyes of God, and yet you do it anyway, God still sees you as married to that other person because you never had reason to break that marriage in the first place. And therefore, to remarry again is sin. And I know that that's a sensitive one, but it's what the text says. Well, fifth proposition. And this comes from a question that is a follow-up of that one. Well, what if you have been remarried, even though you didn't have grounds for divorce? Well, the Bible says that you should, like with every sin, you should confess it to the Lord. You should cling to the cross Know that there is an empty tomb and you can live a new life, but you should remain as you are in the marriage you find yourself in and seek to press forward in glorifying God in that marriage. I know in situations where you have been remarried and you find, you know, I don't think it was right. There's a guilt that hangs over like a dark cloud. You can't see the sun. Well, I would say channel that guilt into clinging to the cross, looking to the empty tomb and channel into zeal to make the marriage you are in glorifying to God. That's what I think the scriptures would say. And much more could be said. Like I said, I, I can't nuance it all. I can't cover it all. But I know for many, there's probably sensitive, specific situations. And I'd be happy to, to engage in those. I don't, I don't have all the answers. Um, but I, I'd like to help you. But there's one more thing that we need to hear the scriptures tell us regarding marriage and divorce. It's the most important thing. So if you're sleeping, this is the time to wake up. This is what I need to leave you with. The Bible teaches, among all these five things I've just said, it says this, there is no sin that you have or ever will commit in and regards to marriage that is unforgivable. There is no sin that you have ever, you have or ever will commit in regards to marriage or divorce that is unforgivable. Fornication or adultery or divorce or an impermissible remarriage are not unpardonable sins. They are forgivable sins. You may feel as if you wear a scarlet letter of sin that keeps plaguing you with shame, that is like a cloud hanging over you so you can't see the brightness of the shining face of Christ, but know that the blood of Christ is more than enough 
to remove those stains completely and free you from every semblance of shame altogether. Do you think that you could be a greater sinner than Christ is a savior? If you think that's true, then you have too high thoughts of your sin and too low thoughts of Christ. And you need to correct that. Your ability to sin will never match his ability to save. Your stains will never match his ability to cleanse. Your ruined marriage will never nullify his redeeming marriage. Your ended marriages will never end his never-ending marriage to you. Your sins could never make you unlovable to Christ. Your sins could never make you unlovely in the eyes of Christ because his heart is full and overflowing. Your sins do not drain Christ of love. They only draw it out as he comes to you with the riches of his grace and his forgiving kindness and mercy to you. You know, it's in looking at subjects like this that we are freshly reminded that we have a great need for Christ. But thanks be to God that we have a great Christ for our need. Let's pray.